Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello and welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and today I'm joined by Joan Martyr, professor of art history at Rutgers University and editor of the Women's Art Journal. She's also the editor of the recent book, Women of Abstract Expressionism a long-overdue survey of the dozens of women artists who played key roles in the development of abstract expressionism in the United States in the 1940s and 1950s. The book accompanies an exhibition that is on view at the Denver Art Museum through September 25th that will also travel to the Mint Museum in Charlotte, North Carolina, and the Palm Springs Art Museum in Palm Springs, California. Joan, thank you for joining me today. Thank you. I'd like to start by asking you about the book's exceptional eight-page illustrated chronology, which is a slightly unusual feature for a survey that looks at over three dozen artists. Um, And I think it offers a key point of entry into talking about the story told in this publication. Yes. Well, the chronology uh, is meant to be a chronology about women, Um, not so much a chronology of the abstract expressionist uh, movement, which other books probably have done, (laughs) but uh, this chronology is specifically aimed to show how women uh, were exhibiting their work uh, at the time of the, we might say, the height of uh, the abstract expressionist movement. Uh, It actually starts in 1933 because it provides some background for these artists to study with Hans Hoffmann. Uh, who was important to all of the abstract expressionists, and uh, to give a little history of where they were before uh, this movement, which we now call abstract expressionism, uh, came to its full realization. And uh, then it goes through the years when the artists began to exhibit together, first in group exhibitions, And then a number of these women actually had uh, solo exhibitions, one-person exhibitions. Uh, And I think that one of the things that one realizes in going through this list uh, and the chronology year by year is that many of these women actually had a fair amount of recognition. The chronology goes to 1960, and it's at that point... uh, when uh, we think about abstract expressionism as becoming a a historical movement in the 20th century. So it is sort of establishing their place among the abstract expressionists and taking the attention away from the male artists who are certainly better known um, in that period of the 50s, and you know, situating them among the male artists of that period, mm-hmm. situating the women. So it's really important uh, to have this, and there are some wonderful photographs also of groups of people, including some where the women are shown alone. For example, um, Grace Hardigan and Helen Frankenthaler. And sometimes we forget that these women uh, who later were seen always as so-called second-generation artists, which means that they would have come later from the original abstract expressionism, abstract expressionists like de Kooning and Pollock and everything, were actually active in the 1950s, early in the 1950s. So chronologically, they're really not 
um, a later generation. Um, that's, it's just that um, this notion of the second generation has come to mean that they are not as innovative. Um, so I'm, I'm sort of challenging that as well. But in any case, the other thing that's present in this chronology is that it goes to the West Coast, to the Bay Area, where there are a group of uh, women who were students of Clifford Still and who were actively making abstract expressionist paintings in the Bay Area, again, in this same period, in the 50s. And of course, one of the reasons that the male artists of this time are better known is a book titled The Triumph of American Painting, A History of Abstract Expressionism um, by Irving Sandler, the major art historian and art critic. Uh, that was one of the original texts on the movement that famously sidelined women. And you include an interview that you did with Irving Sandler in 2013 in this book that is yes. very interesting. Yes, um, it's, a, it's a short interview, but um, it is one that is very important. And Irving was, I guess, really the first to write a book uh, about the history of abstract expressionism as an art movement. And he also knew so many of these artists. He actually interacted with them in some of the small galleries in New York, um, Tanager Gallery. He knew, he knew them personally, so, and he went to uh, the club where they met. So, you know, he has direct interaction with them. And before we actually began this, um, uh, t the taping of this interview, he said to me, if he were writing that book now, um, you know, in retrospect, he felt that it was necessary he would have added five artists to, um, to the, sh to the, um, to the um, original book that he wrote uh, on abstract expressionism. But of the five artists, only one of them would have been a woman, and that was Lee Krasner. Right. Yeah. So uh, I I wanted I wanted to say also about this book that um, yes, it is an exhibition catalog. It's lavishly um, illustrated with many many color plates that are very beautiful. The form it's a large format book, but we also see it as a scholarly book because the people writing for the book we're all professors who are identified with abstract expressionism. And I think that this, um, going back to Irving's in interview, I think that uh, what we try to do in putting together this book is to consider Irving as the beginning of the study of abstract expressionism as an art movement. And then the other essays sort of go on to look at abstract expressionism from the standpoint of more recent decades, uh, especially the decades after the women's movement, when we are becoming much more conscious of the fact that uh, there have been some lapses in our, uh, what can I say, the, the roll call, so to speak, of art movements, and they've too, been too narrowly defined. Um, and Irving's interview uh, essentially did what I was hoping it would do which is to say that Irving more or less states at the beginning that uh, he didn't include women in the book because he just didn't think any of them measured up to the importance of uh, the male artists that he included, um, that he did discuss. But when he gets to the 1950s, he was um, very eager to tell me that he thought that some of the women artists were among the best of the 1950s. 
So, you know, definitely his view changes. <laughs> right. Um, and I think his view, in fact, did become modified over the decades of his own life and work as an art critic and as a writer and as, an, as a teacher also. So uh, that was a good thing. That was sort of a, a balancing uh, because the other authors are younger uh, than Irving, and uh, they're really a, a different generation, and they are the scholars that have come up through the women's movement, and in fact, and most of them have written about women artists uh, previously. Yeah, there's a very thought-provoking essay by uh, eminent art historian Robert Hobbes, yeah. um, which contains some fairly complex ideas. He he is looking at the work of Lee Krasner, Joan Mitchell, and Helen Frankenthaler through the lens of the poetic trope of metonymy, um, which has historically been presented in opposition to metaphor found in the work by the male abstract expressionists, which, you know, and that distinction has served to undermine the work of the women, and Professor Hobbes sort of upends that tendency. Can can you walk us through the essay a little bit? It is Well, I think... um let me first say that um, I think that these essays are uh, sort of balance one another and that uh, there are different approaches. And in the case of Robert Hobbes, he takes a much more theoretical approach. He's interested in some of the literature, uh, both uh, psychological literature and theoretical texts that uh, are important to abstract expressionism. And um, I was hoping that he would, uh, when I spoke to him about uh, writing for the book, I was hoping that he would talk about the women and their approach to nature. And I think that uh, what he did here was very important because uh, he's taking the notion of metonym versus metaphor to explain how women approach the subject of nature. And I think that his the use of the images that are beautifully uh, illustrated in the text, especially those of uh, Lee Krasner, are very telling in terms of having the images uh, actually um, explain, in part, some of the text that he is introducing. And I also like the fact that he has included quotes from the artists as well as quotes from various sources where metonym and metaphor are explained uh, and where basically a more theoretical approach to this um, discussion, these interpretations, is presented. And this is very much in keeping with the approach to art history that is prominent, oh, I would say within the last, decade or so, and certainly something that um, continues now. So again, we have essays that are more straightforward, sort of, uh, oh, uh, discussions of works of art uh, in a more, I mean, in a way, a more traditional sense. Uh, There's some unpublished material that is used by Ellen Landau, for example, but in this case, this is taking images that in some cases might be very familiar to people but he explores them. He looks at them in a very novel and a very uh, sort of deeply um, theoretical sort of context. Uh, And I especially like the fact that uh, uh, despite that, despite the uh, the text, 
texts that he mentions, the authors that he mentions that are important to metonymy, um, that he introduces a photograph of Lee Krasner sitting um, in her house, uh, in her apartment in Brooklyn, in, in her studio, actually. And in the photograph, we see um, a rather, um, oh, I would say, spare uh, plant that is behind her, and he makes a direct correlation uh, of this plant with this painting that he sh she does much later in 1957 called Listen. And basically, it's, it's like putting her identity into this image in a very interesting way. So uh, this essay probably could have had more comparative images, but the images that are included here are very rich examples of the way in which metonym is used for Joan Mitchell and for Lee Krasner in their work. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the extent to which these artists, whose names are increasingly becoming household in the way that the names of the their, their male counterparts are already, yeah. The extent to which they were aware at the time that their that the history was going to be written in a way that wouldn't include them as it perhaps should have from the beginning. Well, in a way, that's what my essay is about. I mean, it's about the fact that these people were all exhibiting together, the men and the women. Uh, they were in group shows. They organized group shows. Uh, and uh, a number of the women were on the juries for selecting works for the shows and I don't know that at the beginning that they had this that they were realized that they were going to be marginalized later um, and I think that they were very actively working and, and one can see for example in my essay the uh, group exhibition of the Ninth Street group uh, one can see that the paintings are um, individualized but all fitting within certain parameters that we would identify with abstract expressionism, the all-over compositions, of course, uh, in this, at this point, all uh, essentially non-objective paintings. And then it was, it was later, it was really within the next decade that abstract expressionism became a, uh, a male movement, partially because the male artists were much more successful financially Partially, this is because Pollock passed away. He died in the in the in 1956. So he uh, became a kind of a, a sort of a hero, we might say, of this movement of abstract expressionism. He had a very violent death, um, and uh, his prices went up, uh, I think, dramatically. And they probably did even before he died, but certainly after. And then um, de Kooning came along as the hero of the movement, so he also established himself in the next few years. And the women um, were uh, set aside, and I think that there were a lot of reasons for this. I think the women probably were rather surprised that this happened, but in part it has to do with the art market and the fact that even today women artists are not really seen as a good investment. Uh, maybe with a few exceptions, uh, they're not seen as a um, a great investment for collectors. 
Uh, so it was about the art market. It was also, to some extent, about the not only the dealers but the writers. Um, but I think at the beginning, the women did not see that. They were they were busily working and uh, participating in group exhibitions. In some cases, I guess there was, you know, traditional sexism, which was very much a part of the 50s. Um, for example, the idea that there was to be a club where artists met on A Street, and initially the idea was not to have women there at all, and that was modified and women did attend, but I don't think that they ever had uh, a position or an importance at the club um, as the male artist did. So. Yeah. And you include a, a quote by Lee Krasner in your essay in which she acknowledges yeah. that it, it may not be entirely possible to look at her art without having Jackson Pollock in your head somewhere, but somehow even in that quote, it doesn't seem that, you know, she thinks that her art is any lesser, you know, I mean, just that that's right. the association has to be there, but she was as much of an artist as he was. Right. Now, what's interesting is that she, you know, she changed her name too. Her name was originally Lenore, and she changed her name to a more, so we might even say unisex mm-hmm. name. Lee, and then we know that uh, Grace Hardigan uh, exhibited as George Hardigan at mm-hmm. the beginning. So some of these women actually tried to market themselves in galleries as uh, men, or at least with some sort of um, generic name. And Lee always used her own name um, for her work and, and signed her work accordingly. Um, yes, and I think it was very hard for her to be separated from Pollock. Uh, in the sense that people identified her later uh, with the Pollock estate. Uh, but she um, she was always working. I mean, I think that uh, I really was surprised at something that Irving said. Irving gave the impression that she only was making small paintings before Pollock's death, and that's not quite true. She was she was working large in some cases, and she had, uh, at least at the end of the 1940s and early 1950s, which is before his death, she was exhibiting her work. So uh, she she wasn't uh, it was she was very much in control, I would say, of her uh, of her production as an artist and her uh, opportunities to exhibit her work and. Uh, that's true of many of the other artists as well. Uh, the younger women actually, and I think I suggest this in my essay, they did a little bit better. Uh, the younger women, uh, when I say the younger women, people like Joan Mitchell, for example, and Grace Hardigan, because they were women who were in their 20s, actually, uh, very attractive, not married, uh, very available in many ways. And... Uh, they uh, they were never seen as innovators, though, at the time. And they uh, had opportunities to exhibit their work perhaps uh, more easily than Lee Krasner had. Mm-hmm. And, of course, as the 50s wore on, they were, they were heading ever closer to the women's movement in the 60s and everything that happened subsequently. Yes. But, um, I mean, for example, you know, I mentioned this in in my essay also. In 59, when there was an international exhibition that was arranged of American art with some focus on abstract expressionism, although it wasn't exclusively that, 
the only woman to be included in that exhibition that traveled around Europe was Grace Hardigan. Mm-hmm. And that was because um, Alfred Barr had purchased a painting of hers, and she was in their collection um, at the Museum of Modern Art, which really sponsored this exhibition, this traveling exhibition. And uh, you think of all of the other artists in 1958-59 that might have been chosen, mm-hmm. and only one woman is chosen. Yeah. You've devoted so much time and thought to exploring the women artists of this time period and really establishing the scholarship around it. Um, you were the curator of a smaller show in 1997 yes. entitled Women and Abstract Expressionism. Um, what was new to you that you uncovered through the process of putting this book together? Well, one of the things that I've also done over my career at Rutgers is to teach courses on women artists every year, every year. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And one of the things that I wanted to do was to get away from this notion that women were only um, followers or uh, students of great artists that I wanted them to be seen as innovators, and I also wanted them to be seen as working large and bold. Those were, I remember, my sort of guidelines for myself when I was selecting work for the the first show that I did, the Women in Abstract Expressionism show in the late 90s. And I think that is one of the surprising things. I mean, if you start looking at the work of these women, you find out, that from the earliest stages, from the early 1950s when they were starting to exhibit together, they were trying to expand um, the scale of their work uh, well beyond the the, um, opportunities they had for studio space, which is kind of surprising. And um, and I found out from an artist that Joan Mitchell used to string her canvases between two trees so she could work. But, I mean, somebody like Pearl Fine um, was making canvases that, you know, were uh, painting canvases that were 68 inches by 66 inches. Um, And Joan Mitchell, 82, this is one that I included in the show at um, Baruch College that came to East Hampton, um, 82 inches by 101 inches. And that she did in 1951. So these women were determined to work big. I mean, that was the style. That was one of the things that the abstract expressionists wanted to do. And Pollock certainly is known for mural-sized paintings. And they were, I mean, the surprising thing was when I began to look at some of the things that these women were doing, even in the late 40s, they were working very large and they were working very bold. Um, And I was thrilled to see that um, because it meant that there was really, uh, there were distinctive styles, but they were not, um, we we might say, intimidated either by scale or by the palette of the abstract expressions. And then they were very uh, gestural as well. I mean, again, what happens to abstract expressionism, to me, is um, <laughs> is based on uh, Hans Namath's photographs of Pollock at work. So you have this idea of this male artist, cigarette hanging out of his mouth, 
um, you know, walking across a canvas, uh, flinging paint as he goes. Mm -hmm. And people look at that and they think, oh, my gosh, you know, I mean, this is like the the great male expression of uh, angst or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And then we find out, for example, that the women were trying to do something similar, although maybe not quite as flamboyantly as that. (laughs) But uh, Pearl Fine, for example, who did these five-foot, six-foot paintings, developed a little system for herself where she put kind of a trestle across the painting which was also on the on the ground and then she would um she would actually kneel on that trestle as she worked on the painting so she wasn't doing it standing um and then of course Palin Frankenthaler who was also working very very large and was working on unprimed canvas and then she would dye the color essentially into into the canvas uh, but again, in a very gestural way. So these people, um, and then you know Judith Godwin later, who um, uh, uh, gives uh, credit to Martha Graham and her dance performances, to uh, which in some cases she participated in, to make um, again these kind of like dance-like gestures across the painting. So, I mean, they were. We we can't just say that the men were the ones that were being uh, bold and sort of aggressive and very strongly gestural and spontaneous. I mean, they, it, that was the, the thing that I was thrilled to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the work is incredible, and, and it's beautifully showcased in the book. It is beautifully showcased in the book, and I think, um, well, I mean, again, thinking of the art market, I think that there are a number of reasons why we might want to look at these works and put them into the art market, partially because, uh, you know, the other paintings are priced out of uh, anyone's, you know, any co- most collectors can no longer afford even to buy some of these things. They're strictly in museum collections. But um, these women are still available for sale. I mean, I think there are works that are still in studios or in foundations, uh, the artist foundations, and uh, they deserve to be out in both museum collections and collectors. Yeah, I think in, in the there's a biography section in the back of the book that includes mm-hmm. biographies of more than three dozen artists, some of whom I think That's will right. be new to a lot of readers. Exactly. Well, one of the same one of the purposes in doing the exhibition and the book was to find some artists that had not received the attention they deserve for their work in this period. And uh, the Bay Area artists were a revelation to many people, and I have Susan Landauer to thank because she wrote her dissertation on Bay Area abstract expressionism and then subsequently did an exhibition with a huge catalog of that topic. But she was including both male and female artists in that. Uh, so here in this essay, she con- concentrates on the women. And so several of those artists were selected for the exhibition. And I think they are going to be a surprise. Jay DeFeo is very well known mm-hmm. at shows all over the country. But the other two artists, Sonia Getchoff, who's still alive, I mean, she's she's really a wonderful artist. Yeah. And she's not well known. Yet. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> Joan, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, and um, I hope that um, I, I just hope, uh, as I mentioned to you, uh, that this book has a life beyond the exhibitions. It's it's something more than an exhibition catalog. We see it as put together by a group of scholars 
who have um, a desire to have new new approaches to abstract expressionist women, not only to look at the work but to detail um, how these women have contributed to a movement that was, um, we might say, cut off from them in terms of um, any interpretation of their work in relationship to it. Yeah. And the book is Women of Abstract Expressionism, and it is available in bookstores and online, including through the Yale University Press website. And that's it for this episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast series as well as the latest from our blog and our authors.